Well, if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, then you know that two weeks ago we started out this year by introducing a great big transformational idea that we're hoping and praying God will use to capture us as a people and then to mold us and to shape us and to make us to be more like Jesus by the end of this year than we are here even still at its beginning. And he knows well that the great big transformational idea is simply stated as this, it is that life is mission. And every week now, for the last couple of weeks, I've spent a bunch of time on the front end defining what that means because, you know, otherwise you're not going to know what that means. It sounds nice, but what is that? And I want to do that again and I want to tell you why. First of all, because if that message is going to permeate the entirety of the community of people who say that Rio Vista Community Church is their church, I've got to say it a lot because we're not always all here at the same time. But more importantly than that, if it's going to permeate me, I need to say it a lot. I need to wrestle with it. I need to think about it. I need to give God opportunity to take it and to challenge me with it and to make me more like Jesus, whose life, by the way, is mission. And so then when I say that life is mission by life, I mean, first of all, the eternal life that is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we've talked about that. I'm talking about our salvation experience, that moment when the Holy Spirit comes from outside of us because that's where our hope comes from. It's not in here already. And he enters inside of us and he makes us alive to certain things like the fact, give me a little grace here, that all of us, starting with me, are big fat sinners, okay? Okay. And, and this is the true realization, that it actually matters. That's the aha moment, I think. And I don't think any of us struggle with the fact that we're big, fat sinners, or at least that we make mistakes and commit some sin. We all get that. The, the fact that it actually matters, that's the catch. See, it doesn't matter to our friends. It doesn't matter so much in our culture. It doesn't matter in our city. It doesn't matter in our world. And I'm sad to say a lot of times it doesn't matter to me, and it ought to matter a whole lot more than it does. And maybe it doesn't matter all that much to you, but it matters to the one who alone matters. It matters to the Lord our God. As we said last week, look, you know, I'm not going to stand before myself and judge me someday. I'm not going to stand before you guys and be judged someday. I'm not going to stand before, you know, my friends or my family. You know, I'm not going to die and go to heaven and find that my mom sitteth upon the throne and get great grace from her because it's hard for her to see any problems with me. You and I will answer to a perfectly righteous, perfectly holy God who will judge us by the standards of his own perfections. Now, that's an aha moment. That's not something we come to naturally on our own. That's something the Spirit makes us alive to and then rushes to our aid in our distress because that's what it calls, causes distress with the Lord Jesus. And he says, okay, but yeah, there's a solution here. And it's the one who alone has lived a perfectly righteous, good-as-God life and who freely offers you his life in exchange for yours. That's a good deal. And he freely then gives you also the benefits of his sufferings and death and burial and resurrection as the full payment for all of your sin, past and present and future. So when I say that life is mission, by life I mean first of all that, but then secondly, and this is the how does this work into my life part, this is the really practical now it affects the way I live part, by life I mean also every single moment of every one of our everyday lives. I mean that too, because he's purchased that with his blood and we've developed it. We've said, look, if you belong to Jesus, then, believe it or not, you belong to Jesus, and that too is an aha moment. 
It is an aha moment when you realize, hey, wait a minute, in this transaction, here's what I got, his grace, his mercy, his eternal life. I got heaven and all of his infinite blessings, on and on and on the list goes. Here's what he got, my sin, my death, my punishment, my hell, and me. He got me. I don't belong to me. I belong to him. So who then shall I live for? That's the struggle, isn't it? And you got to hear that more than once before it permeates you. That's something we deal with every day. You know, the Lord says, if you want to follow me, here's what it looks like. Take up your cross, how frequently? Daily. And die to yourself that you might live to me. So by life, when I say that life is mission, I mean eternal life, and I mean everyday, all the time life. And by mission, I mean his mission, and we've talked about that as well. So let me put that in a nutshell. His mission is for you and I, led by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit. It's the Spirit who leads us. We don't lead the Spirit and invite him to come along. He leads us. And he empowers us to then go out into each one of our little individual worlds, the people with whom we work, live, and play, into our city that he strategically placed us right dead center in the heart of, and then even to the ends of the earth, and to take his mercy and to take his message, even to the ends of the earth, to lay our lives before him and say, okay, look, you know, here I am, I belong to you, now what? How do you want to use me to take your mercy and message to the people I know, to the people in this city, and even to people that I've never seen in places I've never been, because your mission is a global mission, which means that I need to be a global Christian. So life is mission, and in pursuit of that understanding or an understanding of what that actually looks like as it plays out in people's lives, we've been studying the book of Acts together, which is written by a guy named Luke, and in which he provides us with a picture of the early church, a picture of this people who, kind of like us, We're learning to live their lives as mission. And here's what we've seen so far. We saw Jesus gather his 120 disciples there in the city of Jerusalem on the Mount of the Ascension, the Mount of Olives. We saw him commission them to go out into all the world. We saw him ascend to heaven and retake the throne of heaven. He sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We confess that, don't we, in our confessions. And from which he has sent his spirit And we watched how he sent his spirit upon the 120 people who were all gathered together in the upper room doing exactly what he told them to do, which is to wait for the Holy Spirit. And why do we wait for the Holy Spirit? Well, because whereas life is mission, it's a mission led by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we saw how when the Spirit came upon them, he drove them out into the streets of Jerusalem and I think all the way to the steps on the southern side of the Temple Mount. The city that crucified Jesus... The temple that crucified Jesus, and get this, they went out supernaturally proclaiming a crucified and risen Jesus in that city, at that temple, and in all of the languages of all the nations under heaven. And by the way, people, Jewish people, from all of those nations just so happened to be gathered in the city. They'd all come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks. 
And what happened when they began to hear this miraculous, you know, explanation and proclamation of a crucified and risen Christ in all of their different languages is they started going, what in the world is happening? These are all Galilean Jews, and yet they speak all of these different languages. This is a miraculous occurrence here. Something unusual is happening. And all of these people then, this great crowd begins to gather around Peter and the other 11 apostles and the 120 who are proclaiming in all of these languages, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and some of them are marveling over it, and some of them are very jaded and, frankly, kind of silly. And they say, oh, you know what this is, man. These guys have been drinking. Like, if you drink enough, you can speak Chinese. I've never experienced that. I'm guessing you haven't either. We pick up our study today where I think this happens, which is on this massive staircase on the southern side of the Temple Mount. I say that because it's big enough to accommodate this massive crowd, and it's a big crowd. It's near water, and the story ends in baptism, and it also provides kind of a natural amphitheater. And I want you to imagine Peter standing at the bottom of that staircase about to preach his first sermon. I'm going to tell you from experience, that's a little unnerving. It really is. I preached my first sermon like before a church at Seacrest Presbyterian Church in Delray Beach. And I'll never forget, I'm standing in the back with, with another pastor, and he was, he'd been a pastor for, he was in his 80s. He'd been a pastor for a long time. And he said to me, so how many times have you preached before? And I said, you know, uh, this is going to be the first one. <laughs> and I could tell from the look on his face that that really thrilled him. He started thinking about the nap he was going to get to take, I guess. And he said to me, he goes, he goes, well, son, he said, just let me tell you, if your knees start shaking, I always find that you can grab the pulpit and that's helpful. (laughs) And I said, well, I'll I'll remember that. Thank you. I appreciate that vote of confidence. But Peter's going to preach his first sermon. And I, I promise you, it was far more dynamic than any that I've preached. And he's standing at the bottom of these steps with this great crowd above him, you see, hanging on his every word, which is what I want us to do. I want us to listen to this message, and I want us to hang on its every word because I want you to understand that in this message, Peter gives us the message. It's the gospel message of the kingdom, and it is worthy of our attention this morning. We pick up our study today in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, where Luke, the author of this book, says this. He says, but Peter, standing with the eleven, again, I think, at the bottom of the staircase, looking up at them, having just heard the charge of drunkenness for why it is they can speak in different languages, which makes no sense whatsoever, but noticing also that the Spirit has gathered a great crowd around him and that he has everyone's attention with nowhere to run and no pulpit to hold to, just in case his knees start shaking, Peter goes for it. He goes for it. There's a lesson there too, isn't there? He understands some things that he's going to unpack for us. It causes him to go for it. Peter lifted up his voice and addressed them. And listen to what he says. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, all you who live here year round and the rest of you who are here for the feast, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. In fact, you know what? Just hang on them because this is going to be good. It's from God. 
He says, for these 120 people speaking the gospel in every language are not drunk as you suppose. Guys, he says, it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. And so not only does alcohol not allow you to speak Chinese, it also is not something usually 120 people are already, you know, imbibed enough to be affected by at nine o'clock in the morning. What you're saying makes no sense. But let me tell you what this is, Peter says. He says, but instead, what you're seeing and hearing right now is what was uttered through the prophet Joel 500 years ago in your own Bible. And what does Joel say? He says, and in, and here's the key three words, the last days. That's really important. He says, and in the last days, what's going to happen? It shall be, God declares. So it's firm, it's fixed, it's going to occur that. And if I can just make a little interjection here to make it clearer, at the beginning of those last days, what will I do, says the Lord? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And, and if I can just make another clarifying interjection, at the end of those last days, what's going to happen? Judgment. See, what he says next is the language of judgment. It's apocalyptic language. It's something that the first century Jew was trained to understand. They know it from the prophets, including, well, from here. How does God speak of his judgment? He says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood and so forth. And when will all of that happen? Well, it it will all happen before the day of the Lord, before the last day of these last days. The day of judgment comes, the great and magnificent day, at least for those who've had some aha moments and have found their salvation in Jesus Christ. And so he says this, he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord between this day, this outpouring of the Spirit, the commencement of the last days, and judgment day, the end of the last days, what will happen? They shall be saved, not it's probably going to look good for them. It's definite. Peter's saying, guys, we're not drunk. That's silly. I mean, it's crazy. But here's what this is, and this isn't crazy. What you're seeing, your own scriptures tell you about. You're seeing the commencement of the final days of planet Earth, which commenced with the advent of Christ, with the coming of Jesus as Savior, and the pouring out of His Spirit now upon His return to heaven, upon His people to take His gospel to the nations, and will end with the coming of Jesus as judge. And here's the thing Peter's saying. In between these days, Man, this is a day of salvation. This is a day of grace. This is a day of mercy. This is a day, if I may say it, of mission, gospel mission to all of the world because everyone everywhere who calls upon the name of the Lord in faith, who has those aha moments, will be saved. Which practically speaking means, I mean, if we're talking about life as mission, that there's a real urgency to our mission because if we're living in the last days, 
I mean, the implication is that those days will eventually end, and we don't know exactly when that's going to happen, do we? But it's even more urgent than that, I think. Because not only will these days at some point end, but not to be too morbid, so will mine. And so will yours. So not only are the last days we're living in numbered, but my days are numbered and your days are numbered. And guess what? Just like the last days, we don't know when that's going to end. I don't know when my days are going to end either. And neither do you. We don't know. But here's what I do know. No matter how many I get, they're going to go really quickly. That much I figured out. And if you're here today and you haven't yet begun to experience that, talk to someone with gray hair after the service, okay? And make sure they have a lot of gray hair because otherwise they're going to get self-conscious like, what, I have gray hair? But no. And ask them how fast life moves. Life moves fast. You know, Beth and I have a living example of this in our house. You know, our oldest daughter is 18. She's going to graduate from high school. She's going to go to college where every truly brilliant person goes at Florida State University. And uh What? And here's the remarkable thing. Not only do I look now at her 18-year lifespan and go, oh, my goodness, what happened? You know, where did it go? What I've realized is that 29 years ago, I was 18, about to graduate from high school. And guess where I went to college? Just one guess. No, not now. Appreciate you playing along, though. I got to tell you, it's gone really quickly shockingly, stunningly fast. I I look at it and think to myself, oh my goodness, where did it go? Life moves quickly. There's an urgency to our mission. We're living in the last days, they're numbered. Our days, numbered. Oh, and the days of the people that we're called to reach with this message, numbered. So here's the question, and we all have to answer this question. We've got to answer the question of how are we going to spend our days and what are we going to spend them on? Because I think this speaks not just to our time. I think it speaks not just to our talent. I say I think it speaks to our treasure as well. I think it may, ought to make our ears perk up and us sit up in our seat at the opportunity when Christ comes to us and tells us the truth and says things like, don't store up for yourselves treasures in the earth, store them up in heaven. And I know you're thinking, okay, well, uh, a little question about that. Is there like a bank of heaven that I can make a transfer into? I mean, how exactly does that work? You know how that works? It works when you lay your life before the Lord your God. Time, talent, and yes, treasure as well. And you say, all right, look, here's the deal. I don't belong to me. I'm yours. So now what? I know what the mission is. How do you want to use me then? to take your mercy and to take this message that we're hearing today and to take it to the people I know and deal with all the time, to take it corporately into this city and even to the ends of the earth. My goodness, you're, you're a global God and I, I'm on a global mission. I'm called to be a global Christian. And what's encouraging to me is that I see example after example after example after example of people in this church who really and truly get that. I mean, there's a couple in this church who felt like the Spirit was leading them to sell their house, to get out of debt so they could work less, and serve more. You say, well, who does something like that? That's ridiculous. That's crazy. Sell your house, you know. That's a, who does that? That's crazy? 
I think people who really take this seriously and who really feel like, okay, that's what the Spirit's calling me to do, who have laid themselves before it and said, all right, I'm all in, I'm yours. I'm, you know, it's, you know, oh, oh, you want us to sell the house? Gulp. <laughs> I'm sure there were a few gulps, but really. I have a really good friend. He's, he's like a brother to me, literally. But years ago, and it's kind of unique, not everybody can do this, he kind of rearranged his life, and I'm sure he did it at great personal expense to himself so that he could take his leadership gift and invest that more strategically in the mission of God. Is that crazy or is that wisdom? Well, I can't tell you how much this church and I myself personally have been blessed and so many other organizations in this city as well have been blessed. There's a guy in the congregation I had lunch with a couple of months ago, you know, and he's had some aha moments. You know, God has blessed him materially. And and one of the things he said was he's like, I kind of realized that, you know, God's given me what he's given me. And I don't really want to stand before him at this point and have to give an account for how I've used it. He said, here's the words. He says, I have too much. Who says that? What kind of person in the United States of America says, I have too much? He who dies with the most toys wins. No, he who dies with the most toys loses, maybe. His heart is global missions. I had lunch with another guy three, four months ago, very capable person, very bright guy. And he said, you know, you know I've, I've been in business all my life and so forth. And he said, I, f- I feel like, you know, life is about to slow down for me. And I'm really looking at my life and going, hey, man, I don't want to get to the end of my days and say, all I did in this world was breathe air, you know, take oxygen in and out. That's it, ultimately. What a wonderful realization. How are you going to spend your days and what are you going to spend them on? And by the way, They're flying by. Peter looks up at this crowd that's gathered and he says, guys, we're not drunk. Let me tell you what this is. This is the pouring out of the spirit that Joel spoke of. This is the commencement of the last days, which are days of salvation for all who believe in Jesus. And so now he proclaims Jesus. He says in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. You know what? Just just go ahead and hang on them because they're from God. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, and note this, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Jesus did not do his miracles in a cave. Jesus did not do his stuff in the dark. He traveled all over the place, healing and preaching and doing things that only God could do. And these people knew it. Don't deny what you know to be true, he's saying. He's starting kind of with empirical evidence. And then he goes on and says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And now notice this. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now that's just not subtle at all. He's not easing into the message. He's not warming up the crowd, you know. Striking, isn't it? It's interesting as you grow older, as you have children, or maybe you're given managerial responsibilities, you realize that every kind of person is different, you know? I mean, there are different sort of personality types, and and you begin to be able to sort of say, okay, this personality type needs this kind of instruction, and this personality type needs it to come in this particular way, and this personality, you know, with your kids. Like, you have one kid, if you just kind of give them a look, they're crushed, you know? you got one kid, and you can spank them, and they're asking for more. It's just, it's a different approach. 
They're both wonderful and priceless and precious, and you love them both the same, but it's different personality. And sometimes direct is what's necessary. Peter's really direct. And not just with a segment of the crowd. He doesn't break them into personality types and says, okay, now I know you guys need for me to say this directly. So here's the deal. You crucified him by the hands of lawless men. I'm going to take a little more time with these guys and be gentler. Jesus is direct. You read what he says sometimes and you go, oh, that's why they killed him. I think I get it. James is direct. Paul is direct. The prophets are direct. Show me someone who's indirect in the Bible. It's kind of like God comes and says, irrespective of your personality, when it comes to this topic, the most gracious thing I can do is to be really, really direct. And so Peter is. He says, look, you know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, he may have had tears in his eyes when he said it, but he says it. He says, you crucified and killed By the hands of lawless men. That's what you did. You killed him. And now let me tell you what God did, Peter goes on. He says, God, however, here's the opposite side of the coin, raised him up. So he feels a little differently about Jesus than you did. Loosing the pains of death and and leaving behind an empty tomb that nobody in that crowd and no one since has been able to give a reasonable explanation for. Think about that. Nobody got, you know, they didn't lose the tomb, guys. It was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. Pretty sure he knew where it was. He went there with Nicodemus and all of their servants and prepared the body and put him in there and rolled the stone. Pretty sure they knew where it was. The chief priests and the Pharisees go to Pilate, to the Romans, and request a Roman guard and a Roman seal. Pretty sure that they knew where it was. While the disciples of Jesus who thought the mission was over, a crucified Messiah is a, de- is a dead Messiah, a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah, particularly one who dies on a tree under the curse of God. They had no category for that. They're cowering and hiding for their lives. So what did they do? Fight off the guards? Break the Roman seal, which called out the CIA and required they be hunted down? Peter says, look, you crucified and killed him. That's what you did. God, however, raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. So now having given them empirical evidence, he turns to the Bible and says, let me argue again from your own scriptures. I've given you Joel already. But now let's go to David. He says, for David in Psalm 16 says this concerning Jesus. By that he means he steps into the sandals of Jesus a thousand years before Jesus appears, and he speaks from the perspective of Christ himself. And here's what he says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope while it lies in the grave. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Hades is the grave. It's the place of the dead. He's saying, you will not leave me in the grave. Or let your Holy One see corruption. To the Jewish first century mind, the fourth day after death was the day of corruption. Jesus is raised on the third. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, Peter then says... 
He says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. In fact, we can all go visit it. So did God leave him in the tomb? Yes. Did his body rot away? I think we're down to bones and teeth at this point. So clearly David is not writing about himself. Peter says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to David that he would set one of his disciples on the throne. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that, he says, we are all witnesses, all 120 of us and many others as well. But what's the question that's raised? Well, then if he's raised, where is he? Why isn't he standing at the foot of the stairs preaching instead of you? Peter answers it. Oh, you want to know where he is? He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, that's where he is. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that's what he's done. Look at what Jesus has done as well. Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, this miraculous speaking of the gospel of Jesus in all of these languages that drew you all together. This is evidence that Christ sits on the throne and poured out the promised spirit. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then here's the beginning of Peter's conclusion. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus what? Both Lord and Christ. He hasn't just made him Christ. He hasn't just made him Savior. He's made him Lord and Savior, which begs the question, I suppose, and kind of goes back to the whole ownership thing of, well, if, if God has made him Lord and Savior, who is he to me? I, I think, and all of us do this, believe me, that at times, you know, we're, we're real happy about confessing Jesus as Lord. Oh, he's the King of Heaven, and we're going to sing some songs about that. You know what? We're going to throw up a lot of prayers to the King of Heaven. Jesus sits on the throne, and we're going to call and hope that, that he will answer from the throne of Heaven. I'm so happy you are on Heaven's throne, but you can't have mine. My throne. Life is mission, and by life I mean eternal life and everyday life as well. Mission is His mission. We belong to Him. And if we're going to live it as such, we've got to give Him the throne of our heart. And it's a decision we make every day. Intentionally, consciously, knowingly, gratefully, joyfully, even wisely. And so then, having presented His empirical evidence and His biblical evidence for Jesus being both... Lord and Christ, Peter now brings it to a close. Here's his conclusory statement. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. And then he says it again, this Jesus whom you people here in Jerusalem crucified. And we're like, yeah, you bad guys. But they're not the only ones who crucified Jesus. So did I. So did you look. What held him to the cross was not the nails. It was the knowledge that the Father would accept His sufferings and death, His burial and His resurrection as the full payment for every one of my sins and yours, and that if He didn't stay on the cross, He couldn't have us. What held Him there was our sin and His love. 
It's remarkable. And so what's the appropriate response to that message? Luke says, now, when they heard this, this is verse 37, they were convinced in their minds that Peter was right. You know, they hadn't considered the whole, all the arguments for the empty tomb thing. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. You know, and I hadn't really thought about the Psalms like that and the whole Joel thing. That was brilliant. Where did you get that? I think I'm convinced. I think they were convinced in their minds, and that's important. Christianity does not, contrary to popular belief, run past our minds. But what it does do is it moves our hearts. When they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. And that doesn't mean that they were just, you know, feeling guilty because, yeah, I guess you're right, we broke some rules. Got caught. It means they were sincerely broken. For they realized we have broken the heart and even the body of the one to whom we owe everything. And it says, and they said to Peter, and there's no defensiveness, there's no excuses, there's no yes, but, well, if you only knew how I was... None of that. They just lay down before it. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Because we've crucified the one that God has confirmed. As both Lord and Christ, is there any hope for us? And there is. And it's in the death, burial, and resurrection of the very man that we've put to death with our sin. It's completely ironic. And listen to Peter's response. Peter said to them and to us, he says, repent. It means turn away from your sin and turn toward Christ. Repent, he says, and be baptized. Receive the sign outwardly of the community of God in this world, of the true Israel, if you will. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit even as we have, he's saying, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, even for those who live in 2013. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and then Luke says, and then with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Not a bad first day for your church plant. And you know what's cool is that those 3,000 souls came to realize, and then by the power of the Spirit to live, their lives as mission, and I'm very grateful, and I hope that you are as well, that they did, because otherwise we wouldn't be here. Life is mission. And this gospel message, that's the message of the mission. And the call upon our lives is to live our lives as mission as we take this message together with the mercies of Christ, real and practical help to the people in our world, to the people in our city, and also to the people in the world beyond our borders. As we lay our lives before him and say, all right, I belong to you. Here's the throne of my heart. It's not easy to hand over, not going to lie. But you'll do a better job with it than I have. And you're worthy of it. So what do you want to do with me? How do you want to take this message through me somehow, some way to the ends of the earth? And we better get moving.
because time is flying, man. It really is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel message. Um, Lord, we thank you for Jesus who lived and died and defeated death as well for us that we might be washed and made new, called your sons and daughters, citizens of your kingdom. We thank you not only for the eternity that is ours, but we thank you for the privilege that is ours now to take our lives and to invest them strategically as your spirit directs and as your spirit empowers in your mission to the world and every area of it. Lord, the privilege that is ours to take our lives in the midst of a dying world and bring life, in the midst of a dark world and bring light, in the midst of a perishing world and to use them in ways that produce things that are imperishable. We praise you, Lord. We pray that we might give ourselves to your gospel individually and personally and finding forgiveness of our sins through your Son. And then, Lord, we pray that you might give us the power and the courage, the wisdom and the insight, the ability to day by day die to ourselves and live to you and hand ourselves over in every aspect of ourselves that we might invest these lives that you have purchased with the blood of your Son and your great and glorious mission. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.